If you got a Bible, we're in Daniel chapter six tonight. We're gonna finish up our series. And like I said, don't worry, I'll be a little bit briefer tonight um, with this. We're gonna finish up our series in Resilient. Uh, and so if you got a Bible, we're gonna be in Daniel six, verses five through 28, wrapping up uh, this series. And uh, we're gonna go and jump right into this to go ahead and uh, get through this. But um, just so you know, we've been doing this four-week series. This is week number four. We're doing Resilient, talking about how to have a resilient faith in the midst of a culture that's apathetic, even uh, antagonistic to our faith, looking really into 2021 and what it means to be resilient in 2021. We define resilient as being, you know, to withstand difficult conditions. So we want to say, okay, in the midst of the difficulty that's been 2020, looking into 2021, how can we be resilient and enduring in our faith going into uh, next year? And we're going to wrap up uh, this tonight. We've been looking mainly at the story of Daniel. We're going to look at the end of the narrative section of Daniel, which is in chapter 6, in verses 5 through 28 uh, tonight. This is probably the most famous, you know, part of Daniel. It's Daniel in the lion's den, and we watched the the veggie tales a couple weeks ago. You'll notice there's a few details in here they left out of the Daniel in the lion's den because it's kind of violent, you know, for a kid's thing. Um, but uh, we'll get into that. Uh, so but really what I want to do tonight is briefly just point out three things tonight, three things in this story that I think we can take away that are very key for having a resilient faith. Three things, okay? Um, the first is this, as we get right into the story, it's this, is that we embrace uh, the cost and the sacrifice involved in our faith, involved being a Christian. Let, let's do um, verses five through nine. But first, before we even read that, just to kind of catch you up, remember that at this point, Daniel is under the political regime of Persia. At this point, right? He's lived under three political regimes. He had Nebuchadnezzar, his next guy in that Babylonian empire, and now he's in Persia, the Persian empire. He's done really good at his job, like we talked about. Daniel's probably pushing 90 years old at this point. He's pretty old at this point in his life. Uh, and he's serving in the Persian Empire under Darius. He's one of the three guys in charge of the 120 administrators in the kingdom. You know, he's like a secretary of state or something. He's pretty high up there. He's not like the president, but he's like up there in that, you know, higher, I don't know enough about politics to really give you a great comparison, but he's up there in you know, the higher ups. But some of his coworkers don't like him, mainly probably because of, of, his, of his faith. Uh, honestly, it may be because of his race as well, being a Jew. But for whatever reason, especially his faith, they have a plot against him. Let's catch up with that plot. Let's go verses 5 through 9. It says, Then these men said, these guys who were plotting against him, said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, Darius being the leader of the Persian Empire, says, Live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. All right, so right here, see these guys conspiring against Daniel, bring this plan that only da- only Darius should be worshipped for a month. And, you know, if anyone disobeys, there's someone thrown into the lion's den. And notice how they tell a half-truth even as they say, hey, King Darius, like everybody agrees this should happen, right? Did everybody agree to it? No, only these guys probably, maybe some more. Not Daniel for sure, right? So not everybody agrees, but it's a half-truth. But whatever reason, you know, whether Darius believed he was a god or not, he agrees to it. And we see in the next section that Daniel knows this happens, but yet he chooses to disobey and continue to pray to Yahweh. 
knowing he knows who the real authority is in the world. He continues to obey God rather than man. And Daniel makes this courageous choice that we know of, right? To continue to obey God and not to obey this decree. I look at this story and I'm reminded just today even of the courage involved in Daniel and making this decision. Um, but for us today, I'm looking at this story thinking, all right, so it may not be as hard to be a Christian in 2020 as it maybe was for Daniel in Babylon. Probably not. We're not really getting thrown to lions, things like that, you know. But I do think that we have a great point here as we start off, that to be resilient in our faith, I think like Daniel, we have to be aware that there is a cost to our faith. That if we have an authentic faith, there will be a cost I just consider Mark chapter 8, verse 34, 35, famous words from Jesus on the screen. He says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. And I'm reminded from this story and from Jesus' teaching there that if we have an authentic and real faith, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. You know, it may not be our lives, may not be going to jail, but it may cost us our own personal dreams for our life. You know, it may cost us our our comforts. Because here's the thing, worshiping something always costs you something to worship that thing. Worshiping an idol, idols always require sacrifices, right? Now, we may, we not, may not be sacrificing like animals to the idols of stuff today, but we worship lots of idols like comfort, sex, you know, success. Here's the thing, all those idols in our culture, they always require a sacrifice, they're going to require a sacrifice of your time, you know, your energy, your money, your relationships, maybe your body even, at least especially your mind, your heart, your, even your soul, that any worship of anything always requires a sacrifice, so it costs us something. And the same is true when we worship Christ, that it's going to cost us something. And Jesus says it really is going to cost us everything, especially our own plans and our own comfort in life that we're going to have to offer up that ultimately to him because that's part of what it means to surrender our lives to Christ and follow him is to, to literally take up an instrument of crucifixion or an instrument of death and say, I'm going to offer my whole life to you. I'm going to lay it down for you, which means this is that in our culture today, we got to reject the cultural norms of things like entitlement. We got to reject the cultural norms of things like self-centeredness and embrace a counter-cultural mission of service and sacrifice. You know, today there's much said about my generation of, of a millennial that we kill businesses. You know, millennials killed the Ruby Tuesday in Northport, right? Because the thing's closed now. You know, you know, millennials kill all kinds of stuff that we're an entitled generation. You know, we're self-centered. Gen Z, they say the same thing about y'all. Sorry. You know, millennials probably say that about y'all now. I don't know. But, you know, there's this cultural norm, which is, you know, somewhat exaggerated. But it's there in our culture that sometimes we feel like we're entitled so much to an easy life, right? That we deserve an easy life of comfort if we put in X amount of work, you know, or whatever, that we deserve success. And also there's a cultural norm that, you know, really ultimately we need to focus on our own selves and our own life and just make our own lives as easy and comfortable as possible, that we just focus on what we want and that we want to accomplish in life. But as a follower of Christ, we know that our call is the opposite. It's like Jesus says, it's to die to ourselves. It's to be willing to sacrifice and to serve so we got to remember that our, our call to follow Christ and be resilient into 2021 is something that's going gonna to cost us something. It's going to cost us a lot. It's going to cost us our pride, our, our dreams. It may cost us our comfort, but it's worth it. But the question I have to ask myself every day is, what is my faith costing me today? Because if my faith isn't costing me something, then am I really embracing the kind of faith that follows Jesus? It may not cost me being thrown into a lion's den, hopefully not. But our faith should always be costing us something. If not, then is it really authentic faith? So we got to embrace that idea, okay? 
That's the first thing we see. Second thing we see is this, is that we develop a proactive, identity-shaping faith. We see this in verses 10 through 13. Let's keep on reading. Verse 10 says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. If you like underline, circle, underline a circle that, that's a really important phrase, that he had done previously. I'll talk about it in a second why. But then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah. There's tons of salt in that statement, by the way. He's one of the exiles from Judah. He's one of those people. Pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Stop there. So we see they're writing out Daniel, obviously, in this chance to get him thrown into the lion's den because that's what they want. That's their goal here. But think about this. If you're Daniel, your immediate response to this probably would first be what? Bitterness, right? Anger, maybe. Your coworkers are writing you out in your fate to try to get you killed. But notice that we never get any idea in this story that Daniel is bitter or angry at all. He's not trying to rebel. He's not starting a protest because of this necessarily. But what does Daniel do? How does he respond to this whole scheme? He responds by going to the upper room of his house, faces toward Jerusalem, which that would represent like God's blessing for the Jews. So it was normal to face toward Jerusalem when he prayed. Um, and, he, and he prays to God. He's knowing that God's eventually going to bring the Jews back to Jerusalem, like Jeremiah has prophesied. So he's praying to God for God, hey, bring us back. God, do what you want to do. And I love how the writer of, of Daniel, whoever that is, um, I love how he says that this is not something that Daniel like, just was doing in response to what happened. But like I got you an underline, it says he, he's like always been doing this. This is a normal rhythm of his life. This is not something he did, especially because people said, don't do it. <laughs> But he knew that was happening, but he's, this is a part of rhythm of his life. And I, I love this because a couple of things. Number one, Daniel is almost 90 years old, right? He is up there. Uh, if, you, if you've been here a while, you know maybe Herbert Davis, who um, has been in the scooter, which by the way, he's not doing great. Pray for him. He's probably not going to be back in Tuscaloosa probably ever again. He's living with family in, in Tuscumbia now, so you probably won't see him around anymore. But he's in his 90s. And so I'm thinking Herbert Davis getting on his knees to pray. Imagine that, like I'm a third that age and I can already imagine, like I already feel pain in my body from doing things like cutting the grass that I shouldn't feel. I can imagine being 90 and praying. Like, there's, there's something there that, that, that's something all about like devotion to the Lord that you're getting on your knees to pray at 90. You know, that says a lot to me, but also it just makes me think that maybe for Daniel, there was something really special, maybe besides just like normal religious devotion to kneeling. A lot of studies show that our bodies are a lot less separated than we think that our physical posture plays a big role in our mental state. And so some say that literally like kneeling to pray really gets us in a, a better mental state to pray. I'm not saying that's what we always have to do, but I think it's an interesting observation that even our body's posture can play a big role. So maybe for you, this helps me, I know. If I'm struggling to pray sometimes, I'll kneel. And it, many times it's helped me get into a better state of prayer because like something about our bodies, you know, being like a connected body gets me more into that mind of, okay, I'm, I'm praying now, okay? So this is just a thought there. 
kind of an aside, um, but I think it, it points out his devotion to prayer, the importance of prayer. Um, also, one question you maybe have is, why is Daniel praying when, isn't that like a rebellion against the government, which, you know, Romans 13 tells us the government is instituted by God. Well, Acts also tells us that, you know, ultimately there's only one authority, that God gives authority to the government. And so sometimes we have to choose to obey God rather than man. Acts five twenty nine. The apostles literally say that they say to the government of the Romans, "Hey, we have to obey God rather than man." So there are times when we do have to make a choice between obeying the government, the authority, and God. And God is always the ultimate authority, so we will rebel. So that's what's happening here. But here's the thing: in the midst of all this, I'm reminded of two kind of main ideas from this. Number one, we should have a proactive faith, not a reactive faith. All right, a proactive faith, not a reactive faith. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, many times our faith is reactive, right? Like we get into a tough spot in life and suddenly we get way more serious about the Lord because we need him. We're more quickly reminded of our need for God. Maybe this semester, maybe 2020 has been that year for you that you've really drawn closer to the Lord because it's been difficult. Nothing wrong with that. That's good that we draw near to God in difficulty. But I know in my own life, it's so easy sometimes to be reactive and that let circumstances drive me to God instead of having a proactive faith that is really ahead of trouble, ahead of suffering, seeking the Lord consistently and rhythmically like Daniel is here. Because in that, it's going to prepare us for the trials and the chances to witness much better than a reactive faith that only goes to God when things get hard. We see that in the life of Daniel here. But the second thing I see is this. Not only to have a proactive uh, faith, not reactive, but also we need to have our identity as Christians be way more core than our identity as other things in the world. So think about like Daniel. You know, we see very clearly in this story that Daniel found his identity far more as being a uh, part of the people of God, you know, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, way more than he found his identity as being, you know, a citizen of Babylon or a citizen of Persia, you know, whatever place he was in. Because even though he was a high up official, he still is in his core, in his mind, he is a follower of Yahweh. He's a part of the people of God that he's putting rhythms in his life to remind himself of that and to keep his identity deeply rooted in himself more than simply the stuff that's happening in Babylon. I love the way that Paul says it in Philippians 3. Philippians 3.20, Paul says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, away, from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enable, enables him even to subject all things to himself. I love the idea of being a citizen of heaven. It means for Christians that, you know, our identity as citizens of heaven should be the core thing that guides and informs our life over every other kind of identity that we have. Well, I think about like me, like there, there's so many identities I have, like I can tack on, like my, my Twitter bio, you know, you can be, which I'm not, I used to be on Twitter, I gave it up, that place is terrible these days, okay, but, um, <laughs> but you know, like you, all the, the cliche Twitter bios, like, you know, like husband, father you know, Christian, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think about me, like I can say I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm, I'm an American, I'm a male, I'm a musician, I'm a retro video game lover, you know, all these kind of things. And like, oh, I ha- there's all these kind of identities I can have, all kinds of identities you can say, hey, here's all the different parts of your identity. They're all good things. Some of those are more important than others, right? <laughs> but they're good. But here's the thing, when it means to be a citizen of heaven, to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, We realize that that identity as citizens of heaven, as citizens of something higher than this earthly plane, has to be the core thing that guides and informs our decisions way more than any other identity that we have. It's so easy to let our identities, you know, 
other stuff, you know, hobbies we have, you know, political parties we align to, even denominations, all kinds of stuff. Sometimes that can be more of a guide and informing part of our lives than being a Christian, being a citizen of a higher kingdom. So it's so important for us in a culture that so many times is divided these days that wants to argue over all kinds of stuff, and also a culture that really has all kinds of rhythms that it puts in our life to want to shape us into its image, to allow our identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven to be the primary thing that guides us, shapes us, and informs us in life. And how do you do that? Well, the easy thing is kind of like Daniel's life. He had rhythms in his life, things like prayer, Things like time in God's word, things like time with Christian community, even times of serving others, those are all rhythms that remind you who you are. You know, because maybe like on social media, those algorithms are programmed to remind you who you are because of all the stuff it knows about you and the stuff you should like and not like and people you should like and not like. There's a shaping process there in telling you who you are, who you're not. But we need rhythms in our lives to shape us and tell us who we are and remind us who we are. And that's things like spiritual disciplines. We need that stuff more than just to be a good Christian. Those, those shape us and form us. That's why it's called spiritual formation to form us and remind us who we are so we can live faithfully in the world that many times wants to say, oh, no, no, your, your primary identity is not a Christian. Your primary identity is a college student. So do what college students do. Go party, go live it up, go do whatever. No, that's not who you are ultimately, right? Think Lion King. Mufasa's up there. Remember who you are, okay? You're do- remember that, all right? That was free. I don't know why I said that, okay? All right, moving on. Number three, okay? Third thing we see to live faithfully in exile is this. Remember that our faith is for the sake of the world, All right, so let's finish out chapter six. We'll finish it out. We're beginning to wrap up, okay? We're getting there. Verse 14 says this. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king established can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel... May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid in the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a, in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in place. The Bible's not G-rated, y'all. Just saying, that's not in Veggie Tales, all right? All right, moving on. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he's the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. All right, so real briefly, 
I, I love this story for lots of reasons, but you know, we see what happens to Daniel's rivals. You know, they write him out. And I love the fact that Darius is kind of the main focus of the story at this point. It's not really Daniel. You know, Darius is obviously a friend of Daniel because he does all he can to try to save his life. But we see that unlike the Babylonian Empire where like Nebuchadnezzar called the shots, in the Medo-Persian Empire, the law has more authority than even Darius. He can't really do anything to change it. And I think this is yet again a great illustration of the kind of man that Daniel was. That Darius was, you know, he thought that Daniel was very faithful to him and he respected him so much that he was like, I respect your faith, I respect your integrity, I want to try to protect you, but I I can't do anything. And I think it's amazing that really King Darius seems to be way more worried about Daniel than Daniel's worried about himself. You see that? Like, Daniel is like, kind of in the background a little bit in this story, but Darius is the one who's up all night, you know, fasting and praying and worrying about Daniel. And Daniel's just kind of like along for the ride in many ways. You know, and it, I just love that story because I think it just shows us yet again what kind of man Daniel was, but also it shows us really what kind of impact Daniel was having on the people around them. And just to know, I mean, this story is obviously an exemption from the norm because there's lots of stories in church history of people literally get thrown to lions who don't get rescued. So it's not like if you're a good enough Christian, God's going to save you from persecution. It is showing God's power and glory here. But I think the point of this story more than, you know, just, uh, just more than just showing God's glory and power, which is good, more of the point is this, is that this is showing Daniel's impact on Darius. That Daniel's life of faithfulness, even his trials, weren't meant for the praise of Daniel, but they were meant for the witness of Darius. They were meant for the witness of Darius. Because notice, you know, over and over again how Darius points out really twice specifically how Daniel, like, continually serves God. He says, you're God who you serve continually. He says it twice in the story that Darius cares so much for Daniel. And ultimately, once Daniel gets rescued or taken, yeah, rescued and taken out, we see that Darius throws, you know, those who falsely accused him into the lion's den. That's, that's a difficult thing to even think about right there. But we see that Daniel's public faith left an impression on Darius and left an impression on other people around him. And I think this is a great reminder for us that like Daniel, you know, our faith is never just for us, but it's for the sake of the world. What I mean by that? Well, most of the time we think about our obedience to the Lord, you know, our own spiritual disciplines, our commitment to God. Many times we think about it, you know, just for us in terms of our our own experience of God, our own growth and holiness, things like that. And those are all right and good. But I think sometimes we forget that our devotion to Christ, our faith, is never just about us growing in our own personal experience of God, but it's also for the sake of other people. It's It's for the sake of the witness for Christ to other people. Because in this story, Daniel's faith is really way more for Darius than it is for Daniel. Daniel's mentioned to be courageous, but really Daniel's faith is meant to be more of an impact to Darius in this story. And we know over the years how many people have been, you know, inspired, challenged by this story. But even for us, like I think for us today, this is a great reminder that when you're faced with a tough decision to obey God, to obey God versus to sin or to obey the world, or, you know, when you're suffering, and have an opportunity to display God's goodness as you suffer, you know, or even when you suffer for your faith, or even as you just seek to be a devoted Christian day in and day out, know that all those things are never wasted, that your suffering is never wasted, your small acts of obedience to the Lord is never wasted, that none of that stuff is really simple and small, but those are always all big things because God wants to use even the small acts of, of obedience. He wants to use the big acts of obedience, the big acts of obedience even in suffering, all that stuff. He doesn't just want to use it for you to make you a stronger Christian, although, yes, he does. But even more than that, he wants to use those things as for you to be a witness to the goodness of God to other people. 
So don't neglect those things and don't waste your suffering and don't forget that it's not just for you, but it's ultimately to glorify God and point other people to Christ. And so view it that way. It's hard to remember in the midst of it, but remember that our faith is never just for us. Our faith is for the sake of the world, to know Christ as well. So we'll wrap up with with this last thing. So notice there at the end of the chapter, we see that Daniel prospers until the reign, the, the reign of Darius and Cyrus the Persian, right? Well, if you do a little bit of digging, the scholars tell us that those two people are potentially actually the same person. It's a little bit fuzzy. It's kind of hard to understand. But like, there's a good chance that either Darius and Cyrus are the same person or that at least Darius was like a sub-ruler to Cyrus during that time in history. So what this means is this. In the book of Ezra, we hear about Cyrus again. In that book... It's actually during the first year of Cyrus's reign that the Jews are allowed to go back to Jerusalem. They finally get to go home. And what does that mean? It means this. It means that Daniel spent almost his entire adult life in Babylon, and at some point near the end of his life, the people actually got to go back. But if Daniel served all the way up until prospering till the reign of Darius and Cyrus the Persian, what that probably means is this, is that from all we know in, in history, Daniel probably decided to stay in Babylon even when the Jews got to go back. That he chose to stay in Babylon even when his people finally got to go home. Now, why would he do that? Well, number one, he was probably really old, so maybe he didn't want to make the journey. But I think even more than that, practically, I think that he chose to stay in Babylon because he realized that he was having so much of an impact there in Babylon that he didn't want to lose that. That he was working for the good of the city, like Jeremiah 29 says. He was living as a faithful witness and ambassador for the kingdom. He was like, you know what? I, I'm going to commit myself to these people. Even when I had the chance to go back to where it's maybe easier, maybe to my homeland where it's more comfortable, where people are all like me back home. And so I think he took God's command to be a witness so seriously that he even gave up his chance to go back home so he could stay and be a witness to Christ or witness to God all the way through the end of his life. And I love that, just how much we see he was committed to being a witness in a culture that was really very, very hostile to his faith. So as we close, I want to ask you, like, you know, where is your Babylon? Who is your Babylon? You know, what are the ways you can influence culture? You know, will you embrace the cost of your faith, knowing Christ is worth it? Will you find your identity as a citizen of heaven over the identities the world would want to throw at you? And thirdly, will you live boldly for your faith? knowing that your, fa- your faith is never just for you, but it's for the sake of the world. Those are my three challenges to you tonight. So what I want to do is I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take some time to discuss. I'll give you guys maybe 10 minutes. We'll go like a little bit hair longer tonight, but I think we're fine. It's our last normal college Bible study. We'll make it count, right? So um, I'll give you guys about 10 minutes to discuss. If I can ask you to do one thing, as you wrap up your tables, many um, of y'all won't be back until January. And so we won't see you again, especially the freshmen. I know you have no place to live after like Saturday. So, um, so we won't see some of y'all until um, next semester. So if you will, before you wrap up tonight, pray for each other at your table. If you, want to, you don't have to share like all the prayer requests, you know, everybody has. But if you'll just take some time maybe to share like ways you can pray for each other as you go home. You know, maybe you have a difficult family situation you're going back to. You know, find ways that you can pray, encourage each other as you go back home for the break. And then have at least one person pray for the table and pray over the break for you guys. Okay? So let me pray for you first and then you guys discuss and pray for each other. I'll give you, then I'll give you guys about 10 or so minutes to do that and we'll be done. Father, you are good. Lord, we love you. Or you are so faithful to us even when we are unfaithful. And so, Lord, I pray as we look at the example of Daniel, that we will see and be encouraged and challenged by his resilience in the faith of a cult, in the in face of a culture that was very antagonistic to what he believed, but how he, he really 
was faithful to people, um, even when they didn't agree with him. And he was faithful to people who just were very different. And yet in his faithfulness, in his boldness for you, in his obedience, in his courage, Lord, gosh, so, such a powerful witness was able to, to happen because of his boldness and obedience in a difficult culture. And so I pray that we would look at his example and be encouraged and challenged in the same way as we look into 2021. And whatever the future may bring next year, Father, we can say that you are with us, that even as we live in some ways as exiles today, that we can be faithful and resilient in exile because you are with us. You want to use us in this cultural moment to be a bright light for you for the gospel. I pray you guide conversations tonight for your glory. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.